Now, grab your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 7, and let me read you the first 12 verses of uh, this great uh, piece of Paul's Roman letter. Um, At verse 1, it begins like this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? Oh, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known that it is what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead." I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, I I hope you didn't get lost in all that 12-verse passage, and and if you're somewhat confused, my my job this morning is to try and sort it out, sort some of it out for you, and I hope that you'll leave at least understanding the the mind uh, or the, the point that Paul is trying to make here. Let me, let me first be, begin with a quick confession. What I'm about to preach to you this morning and next week, I have taught before, but not in this venue. Um, I taught this on two, two Wednesday nights back in August um, to the Wednesday night crowd. And when I was done, a woman came up to me and she said, um, you need to do that for big church. And I thought, you know, she's right. So here it is. Um, the, the reason why I think, it, I think the point that she was making and the, the point with which I agreed was that it, this passage has to do with a battle. A battle that we are all in, all of us. Uh, actually, it's, it's two battles. It's one battle that you cannot win, And the other battle is one that you cannot lose. And that's a title that I stole from another preacher. Every one of us, ladies and gentlemen, this day, right now, is in one of these two battles being discussed in Romans 7. 
Both of those battles are front and center in this chapter, Romans 7. It is the, battle are, the battles are discussed elsewhere in the New Testament. But here, they are, they are the, the, the theme of the whole chapter. Romans 7 is, in essence, the glamour shot uh, of the whole discussion. Gang, you may not know this, but whole books have been written concerning the issues that are front and center in Romans, 17, Romans 7. The question that is so often asked and so often debated is this one. Is Paul describing a Christian or a non-Christian in these verses, especially verses 13 through 25, which we'll get to next week? Um, look at verse 15. Um, I do not understand <clears throat> my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Is Paul describing a Christian there or a non-Christian? Is he describing his Christian days or his non-Christian days? Well, well, we'll answer more of that next week. But um, this much, I think, is fairly certain, fairly clear, that the first 12 verses that I just read are describing a pre-Christian condition. Now, I, I could have used the word non-Christian position, but I think pre-Christian is more in line with the theme and the thrust of the passage. So we're going to use that term pre-Christian. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the battle that you cannot win. If you're a Christian today, it's the battle that we used to be in. That is, in verses 1 through 12, it's describing the battle that we used to be in back in the past. But if you are here this morning as a non-Christian, it's the battle that you're still in. And... Um, and I say to you pleadingly, it is a battle that you will never win. Now, let, let's, get, let's get closer to the text. Let's on to the text. Guys, back in my early days as, as a Christian, um, I would take people to uh, Romans chapter 7, especially verse 2, and I would teach them out of verse 2 that if a spouse, if your spouse dies then the surviving spouse is free to remarry. Well, that's true. But that's not what this text is about. This is not about stipulations about marriage, ladies and gentlemen. That's not, that's not what Paul is developing here. Um, Paul is in the middle of an elegant discussion of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from any works of the law. Okay. At this point in, in, in the Roman letter, in chapter 7, Paul is depicting a man who is yet unconverted, but is trying to save himself by human merit, or what he calls saving himself by the law or works of the law. But instead of saving, 
the law actually produces sin. Did you see that? It's in verse 8. But sin, (coughs) pardon me, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then he adds, or earlier he says, that it even it even produces death. The end result is death. It's in verse 5. While we were alive, or living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So Paul is saying these things about the law to a heavily Jewish audience, and, the, and he, he understands that Jews are going to th- start thinking. Those little brains are going to start working, which I hope yours are too. The brains are going to start working. And he just said that the law will not save you. It will produce sin and it will ultimately end up in death. And so he's thinking, oh gosh, my audience is thinking this. Okay then, Paul, if that's true, is the law sin? Is the law in and of itself sinful? And then he answers in verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Oh, 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 by no means. It's the strongest piece of negation available in the Greek language. Meganoitoi. May it never be that the, that the law is sin. Oh, no, 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 no. The, uh, the problem is not with the law, he says. Don't blame the law. It might produce sin or aggravate sin, but it's not the problem. Oh, now, wait a minute, Dr. Young. I don't get that. I mean, if it produces sin and aggravates sin, then it seems to be the problem to me. Explain yourself, okay? Paul says, nope. He says it in verse 7. Nope, the law is, is, is not the problem. By no means. The fault lies with the principle of sin within us all. Look at it. He, um, he, he mentions it in verse 9. Sin came alive. Uh, verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity. Verse 13, it was sin. Gang, the problem's not the law. The problem is that within us, there is a principle of sin that makes sin so attractive to us. not the law's fault the fault is i have a principle of sin within me what the law does he says is that the law defines sin and even provokes sin but he says in verse 12 but the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good the law is not the problem the sin on the inside of me is the problem what the law does is produces sin and aggravates sin. Now, okay, now what, 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 what do you mean by that? Okay, guys, when, when I say it produces it, what Paul says in verse 7, look at it. Um, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said thou shalt not covet. You see... 
It was the law, says Paul, that defined sin for me. Because you see, Paul, on the outside, prior to his, his conversion, on the outside, Paul could claim, just like the rich young ruler, could claim obedience to the first nine commandments. Oh, yeah, I know my mother and dad, I never stole anybody. You won't catch me committing adultery. Oh, not me. <clears throat> but then he got to the 10th commandment. And you know, the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. Or if you like the word envy better, use that one. But the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. And he begins, he begins to think, wait a minute. <clears throat> um, I know what it is to sin with my members. Look at verse 5. When he talks about our members, he's talking about body parts. My hands, my eyes, my ears, my brain, my mind. I know how to, what it is. I know what it means to sin on the outside. But the tenth commandment, you see, the tenth commandment took me to the inside because you don't covet on the outside. You covet on the inside. And once he understood the tenth commandment, he now sees. This huge problem because the 10th commandment was the thing that exposed his sin in all of its hideousness. Now, now <laughs> wait just a minute, Dr. Young. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, you got to tell me some more about that because, you know, I, I, uh, I envy all the time. You know, I, I, I'm often guilty of covetous. <laughs> yes, sir, Bobby. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I do. I, I covet. I, I, but, and, but you just said, what, what, what is all this about the hideousness of sin? I mean, tell me, what is it that Paul saw on the inside of him? Guys, do you know what coveting is? You know what envy is? What it, it is saying that there is something beyond God that I have to have if I'm ever going to be happy. There's a house or there's a job. There's a, a child or a, a wife or a husband. And if I don't get that, I'll never be happy. So you see, there's something beyond just God that I got to have if I'm ever going to be happy. And do you know what that's called? That's called idolatry. And that's exactly what Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 calls it. All covetousness is idolatry. It's not just that I want something. It's that I want it more than I want God. I want more. Because you see, Jesus is not enough. And when that is true, 
then other things, other collateral sins begin to arise, like no contentment. And not only that, anger. You know, it was Larry Crowd who first pointed out to me that it is blocked goals that produce anger. And for me, you see, I have determined that I've got to have that or I'll never be happy. But I don't have that. And therefore, I'm angry. Guys, could I say this? It's somewhat of an aside. It's just a piece of application. This happens in so many marriages. Because we marry thinking that that this marriage will, will bring me happiness. And it doesn't. And in some cases, it produces the exact opposite. And you see, I thought this thing was going to make me happy, but now it's in my way to happiness. And my goal to be happy is blocked. And not only am I discontent, I'm angry. All because I'm guilty of a violation of the Tenth Commandment. But the text also says, not only does the law define sin for me, look at this, this is amazing, it also arouses sin. It's in verse 5. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful, aroused by the law. There is a sense in which the law exacerbates my sin problem that's on the inside. Well, how does that happen, Dr. The best illustration I know is that it comes from a, um, a book that Augustine wrote. Uh, it's entitled Confessions. And in his book, The Confessions, he tells the story of being an eight-year-old boy who one day um, stole some pears from an orchard. And later on, uh, he started thinking, now why did I steal those pears? I don't even like pears. I didn't eat the pears. And I ended up throwing the pears away. Why did I steal those pears? Because... There was a sign on the fence around the orchard and it said, keep out. And it was that keep out sign that provoked that principle of sin within me. And I went and stole those pears. Let me bring it closer to home. We parents, we tell our children, don't you jump on the furniture. And all of a sudden, our children have an insatiable desire to do what? Yeah. 
jump on the furniture. Don't you throw that ball in this house. (laughs) Because you see, sin is aggravated by being told no. Because at the base of my soul, I'm a rebel. And I don't want anybody telling me what I can and what I can't do. You know, ladies and gentlemen, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered, you do know, I hope, that that's not about an apple. It's a story about rebellion, cosmic rebellion, and to be forbidden of that one tree is not something I will live with. It is the law that aroused my sin principle. So you see, to summarize, the law, the law isn't the problem. It was the thing that showed me my sin by, it, by its restricting me. It showed me my sin, and it brings out my sin nature. Um, the, law, the law exacerbates my desire for that which is forbidden. Look, look at verse 8. But sin ceasing an opportunity to do the commandment produced in me all kinds of, apart from the law, sin lies dead. It's not that it was non-existent, ladies and gentlemen. It's just that it was dormant. And the law came. And all of a sudden, it awakened. Sin came alive. It's in verse 9. Sin came alive. And I died. That's not to say, ladies and gentlemen, that I was once such a good little boy and then the law came and ruined everything. No. The Tenth Commandment came. And for the first time I understood it. And my sin came alive and came into focus. And I died. It's just that I've never, I had never understood it before. And how is it, how is it that I... That I understand it now. The law. There's a great illustration of what Paul is saying there in the New Testament in a couple of places in the Gospels. Um, It's in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. It's in Matthew 12, I think. 
It's a story that's called, it's entitled The Rich Young Ruler. It's a, it's a story about a man who was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler, and that's why they call it The Rich Young Ruler. <laughs> How about that? Um, anyway, by the way, um, there are some who would suggest that The Rich Young Ruler was really Paul, because what you see in that story is what's illustrated here in Romans 7. Let me tell you about it. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, <laughs> we're really impressed with you. And, and could you tell us, could you tell me what I could do to earn my salvation? Uh, could you help me out here? Could you just tell me the things that I need to do so that I can earn my salvation? Could you give me a list so that I could, uh, you know, follow it and, you know, uh, you know and, and, and save myself? Jesus says, well, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. How about this? Um, don't, don't steal and don't lie and don't commit adultery and, and honor your father and your mother. And the rich young ruler says, oh, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You must not know who I am because, uh, you know, I've, I've already done all that. I mean, I'm, I'm just hunky-dory when it comes to that. Jesus says, oh, I, excuse me, I didn't mean to offend. But let me, let, me, let me just add one more thing. There's just one more thing that you need to do. You need to go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize what Jesus just did? He took the 10th commandment and he held it up in front of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler was exposed. And the rich young ruler finally saw that my attempt to save myself will never work. My attempt to establish my own righteousness on my, based on my own performance, it will never work. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the battle that you will never win. If you for a moment believe that you can create enough merit to save yourself, you will lose that battle. And then the, the story in Mark 10 says, and the rich young ruler, disheartened, went away being very sorrowful. My dear friend, don't leave here today disheartened and very sorrowful. But let me remind you, if you think for one nanosecond that you can create or author a self-salvation project, that is a battle you will never win. And you must die. The remedy 
is to come to Christ. To embrace the Savior. If you will not, the battle in which you now find yourself you will lose. Oh God, would you convict people of that truth? I I can't do that. Um, And where I have been true to your word, would you take that and, and bury it into the heart and souls of every listener? Because the battle of trying to save myself is one I will always lose but you have provided a remedy for guilty people like me. The remedy for me is the remedy for everyone in this room. Christ and Him crucified. Would you show men and women the the fool's errand on which they find themselves and then point them to the beautiful Savior? Do that for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen.